be that so excited to preach that I was here before the scripture was being read. Or I could just to my memory, forgetting things. But it is indeed a blessing to gather with you as God's people and uh, delight in the things that our brother just read. Uh, and I do want to reiterate what's already been said. As I look around this room, I see so many folks who are fathers and love their children and would, like this verse said, not like a hired servant, you love your children to the degree that you give yourself up for them. And it's demonstrated in so many ways. The Lord himself has been our greatest example of that, right? And so we find in these passages the most challenging thing for us, isn't it? We've been going through what we know as a flower. Not a rose, but what? A tulip, all right? Uh, interesting, that is called that. So on the one end, we have total depravity. We have all of these folks who are falling into sin. On the other end, we have God preserving people to the end. How does he take a group of people who have fallen and are his enemies and preserves them for heaven? Well, in the middle, you have three letters. One, our dear brother last week, Pastor Keith, helped us understand that God, out of all of those fallen people, secured a people for himself. The work of the Father. The Bible's clear about that. Then we come this morning to this reality. How is it that though they're fallen and the Lord himself, the Father, has chosen them, how in the world can he preserve these folks who are so sinful? If in his sight every sin is despicable and his holiness requires that all sin from him be cast away and destroyed. Unfortunately, this particular letter in the word tulip has been looked down upon by multitudes. And when I use it, my goal for you is that you wouldn't already get a misconception or preconceived idea. When we hear the word limited atonement, automatically we say, man. So the other side believes unlimited. They are far more gracious. And it appears far greater in their understanding of the atonement. Well, I hope by time we end this sermon that you see clearly that's not at all the case. That the work that the Son was given by the Father is a beautiful work and secured the ends for which His Father gave Him. Isn't it a neat thing when you send your son on a task, you go and see and he does it completely? Go take out the trash, son. He takes half of it out. As a daddy, do you smile on that? The father laid into the hands of the son a responsibility which no man could accomplish. He had to come himself. And we'll see that. Next week we'll understand how it is that the father then, having chosen and put these people in the right place by the work of his son, then brings them to himself. This is the neat thing about this little word. Now, what all occasioned this 400 years ago and Every day since, there's been this great debate. A fellow named Jacob Arminius, you well know, brought some things to the front, began to teach in ways of which others had disagreement. 
he began to say things about this little word opposite of what we today believe. Now, he was a good man. The Bible, or the Bible, the history indicates he was a very good man, loved the Lord and loved the Scripture. Had himself been a faithful man who understood the doctrines of grace, but at some point in reading Romans 7, had a misunderstanding of what that was teaching. And from that, he began to go off into a different direction about some things we believe to be precious and important in the Scripture. Ever since that day, and even prior to that, there's been this ongoing and continual challenge. Even in my Bible school experience, I'll never forget my 75-year-old systematic professor whom I love dearly, Mr. Jackson. As he stood there, and I sat there, and he said, Christ died for every man's sins equally. My naive mind thought, well, then everybody's got to be saved. Wouldn't you think that? So I raised my hand. I said, sir, I had no intention in any way, shape, form, or fashion to create any kind of disturbance. That wasn't my goal. I said, if Christ died for every man's sin, then how is any man in hell? He stood there for a minute. Unbelief, he said. They don't believe. So I left that class that day thinking this thought. Well, every man's sins paid for except one. Then I read the Bible and found out unbelief was sin. So how do we deal with these kinds of thing, things like this? How is it that you sit in the pew and when you stand and sing, the most important part this morning is not the fact that we line up with some theological position. The most important point is that as you sit on the pew of these seats, that you think rightly about the God who loves you and the Christ who redeemed you, that you can sing and live in the most appropriate way that in humility brings Him glory. That's the point, right? So as we come this morning, let me lay down just a couple of things that I feel like are very important. The Bible indicates, as Paul writes in Romans 3, let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified, Lord, in your words, and prevail when you are judged. I know I want to set in judgment on God about what he said. I simply want to believe it and embrace it. That's all I ask. Give it a fair hearing. God himself says in Isaiah, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. My encouragement to us this morning is this one thing. Paul went from synagogue to synagogue and place to place reasoning from the scripture. Let us not be carried away by emotions. Let us be those who refuse to jump to conclusions. Let us be those who search the Scripture. What must our end be in all of it? To know God and to worship Him in spirit and in truth. As I sadly listened to one of my 
fellow students at the Bible college I went to, he looked at me and he said, even if the scripture says that, I won't believe it. Let us not be that way. Let us let God speak and let's listen to him. Let God speak. Embrace even what we in no way in our limited understandings can fully comprehend. Let's embrace him as the one who is true and right and good. So we, with that in mind, I want to help you understand the differences that people see in this matter of the atonement. We can, if you're in Sunday school, you've been a part of this little book and it's study and it's been very helpful. Let me read for you what the Bible says the atonement actually is. He defines it in this way. The atonement is the death of the God-man, Jesus Christ, on the cross and what it accomplished. Because of human sinfulness, a sacrifice for sin is necessary to avert the condemnation and restore people to God. Old covenant sacrifices made provisional atonement looking, looking forward to the work of Christ to accomplish atonement fully and forever. That you see then... It's the work that Christ has done to remove what has by sin put us in this most horrible position where we love the things God hates and we hate the things God loves and at the heart of every sinner is the enmity toward God. That's the reality of where one stands. The atonement removes all of those things. Puts us in a right relationship with God. So then what's the differences in the way men view this understanding or idea of atonement? I want to first share with you in what things they agree. I think this is important. As we look at this this morning. Both groups of folks who have studied the scripture come to this conclusion. There's a need for an atonement because we're sinners. Christ is necessary for atoning. And Christ's death is infinite and eternal in its value in the way of atonement. On that we all agree. So then where do we differ? It's important this morning to understand this. Because you see, you're there with thoughts in your mind about what Christ did and why he did what he did. And the most important thing is that you think and I think the way God thinks about it. Okay? Emotionally, I might think something different. But biblically, let my mind be gripped by these truths. Let my heart be moved to the affection that it ought to be to the worship of God. We come to this first point. <clears throat> they both limit the atonement by necessity. Why do I say that? The scripture clearly indicates that many die in their sins. Would you agree with me there? Many today are in hell because in their sins they lived and in their sins they died. There were those when Christ was on Calvary's cross who had already because of their sins been set apart for judgment. Without question, that's true. So here's the point. 
when Christ died, did he actually remove the sins of the people for whom he died once and for all? Or did he make salvation possible for everyone and actually saved no one? That's the question. So then we're given the responsibility to answer this particular question. You see, if I believe that Christ certainly did die and save the people that God gave him, he saved them completely to the uttermost. He made certain that everything was accomplished. Nothing was left undone. And that means I've limited the extent or the number. But if on the other hand I say, no, he didn't die for anybody. He died in general. Then I must confess that the most people for whom I say he died are in hell. So I limit the power of his work. Both sides must agree. So then what the question we ask, what is the question we must ask? What does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? I remember one of my dear professors whom I love dearly. I benefited from this brother in so many different ways. He was my elder by many years. I would sit in his home, we would discuss the scripture. He loved the scripture. He was a man who who was a debater and had all of his life debated creation and other issues. This was a man who understood the issue. I said, Brother Paul, with the highest respect for this man, I said, you understand that the position you hold when you stand in heaven, if you hold to the position you hold to, you have to say you're in heaven because of you. If you believe Christ died in general for everyone but actually secured no one, then it's left to someone to secure the end. And who is it? What did he say? He knew his whole argument hung on that one point. He was one of the only few faithful men who held to that truth that I ever saw. He said, I'll be in heaven because of me. Do you say that, brother? You see, because the position that I spoke of that Jacob Arminius and the group that favored him said is depicted by B.B. Warfield in this way. It's like a bridge being built over the water. It's wide, but it comes short of the shore on the other side by 25%. Guess how you get to the other side? Do the best you can. Christ did only what he could do. He left the rest and the closing of that bridge to the other side up to you and your faith. Oh, me. But the position that we hold that Christ came and secured the salvation for his people is like a bridge. It's narrow. Narrower than the wide one. But guess what it does? It reaches all the way to the other side. There was nothing left for you and for me. He purchased along with our redemption. He propitiated God. He removed our iniquity. He purchased in all of that our faith and repentance. 
you see. This you see then is the difference. So let me come to this. What in the world, anyway, was the desire of Christ displayed in the Scripture? I want you to note this. You see, I think this is real, real important because this ties this point in to the last point of the Father's work. In John 17, Christ is praying for His people. Notice how He prays. I'm going to read these first four verses. These words spake Jesus and lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father... The hour is come, glorify thy Son, and thy Son also may glorify thee. As you have given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is the verse. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you gave me to do. What in the world does the gospel of John say the purpose of Christ was? To do what the Father sent him to do. It was what the angel told Joseph. Call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. He didn't say he'd make it possible for them to save themselves. He made it clear what the Father had given him in the way of a responsibility. It was the very thing the writer of Hebrews said that encouraged Christ in the midst of his greatest suffering. He would look and see those whom he would purchase and that gave him great confidence and comfort. And so it is in John 5.30, I came not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. The same thing John 6 and 35 says. So we can understand then as Christ looked at his work as he saw it before him. His thought wasn't merely some emotional thing. I came to not accomplish really thing in general. But just so that folks would look on me and feel sorry that I came. No, his goal was as he looked at his father to do exactly what his father had commissioned him to do. How much comfort is that for a king when you send an emissary somewhere to a foreign country? You give him instruction. He is to go and do exactly what you sent him for. So really the question this morning is, what did God send him for? And as we search the scripture, we find this to be so. You see... Christ in the atonement has so much to do, as a matter of fact, first place with the Father anyway. Fortunately for us and secondarily is that we're a part of it. But how could God be just and the justifier of those who have sinned? But He could in Christ, you see. So the purpose of Christ and the desire displayed is that he was here being faithful to his father he came he said I'm telling you what the father sent me I'm here not to do my will but the one who sent me and Gethsemane as he prayed not my will but thine be done he said so we can agree together that the scriptures clear on this one point he's on a mission he didn't come to do what he wanted merely he came to do what was designed before eternity and given him as a responsibility 
This was, you see, not something that just occurred all of a sudden when Adam and Eve chose to fall. Matter of fact, it was the goal of creation. The glory of God is most seen in the face of Christ, not in the size of the number of stars. Although that's an amazing thing, isn't it, as we look out in creation, as we see the beauty of it all. You see, Christ, the Father, is not most glorified in all of those things. Certainly He is. But He's most glorified in the person and work of His Son and accomplishing everything that He came to do without fail. Clearly, Christ came. And His goal was, let that sink in, to do the will of Him who sent Him. Now I want you to note with me so that we can understand. So Christ is coming for this purpose. So then what has the Father prepared in all the Old Covenant for us to understand? John 1, 35 and 36 speaks of John the Baptist as he watched Christ saying these words. Behold the Lamb of God. In another place in that verse, in that first chapter, Behold the Lamb of God. That takes away the sin of the world. We know John 3 and 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Right? We see that all over the scripture. Christ tied in with his idea of a lamb. Of a sacrifice. Where in the world would they get that idea? Well, the Bible's full of it, isn't it, in the Old Testament? And Leviticus chapter 16, and this evening, if you have an opportunity, you can read chapters 1 through 16 in Leviticus. This one word you're going to see often, this word atonement. This word atonement. Man, here these folks are living in this community, gathered out from the slavery of Egypt. Brought across in miraculous ways. Established to be the people of God. Based on the promises given to Abraham. There is one thing that you cannot get away from. If you were living in their day and time. God's about this atonement thing. Your whole culture is built on atonement. I mean I'm telling you it's everywhere. Daddy's always taking some kind of animal to the temple, laying his hands on it, cutting its throat, draining its blood. They're putting it in particular places, cutting it up in particular ways, laying it on this burning altar. And Daddy always says something like this, that aroma is sweet in the nostrils of God. And the question you ask as his son, why? Daddy has to look at you and say, I've sinned, son. I took advantage of somebody. I cursed a man. I took what wasn't mine. And you have to go through all of that. What'd that animal do, daddy? Nothing. Why'd you have to kill him? Boy, those are good questions. Leviticus 16, I think, captures all of that in this way. And we can understand not only the need of atonement, but also the fact that it was 
particular and limited. You see, the man who sinned brought the animal. He didn't call his wife up because he was watching sports and say, look, honey, I'm too busy right now. Could you take that animal down to the temple and have that rascal sacrifice for me because I did something that wasn't right? You took the animal to the temple. You laid your hands on its head. In that, God covered. It was a foreshadowing of the future. Leviticus 16 says this for the nation. And notice what it doesn't say. Atonement was for the individual person as he brought his animal. Atonement in Leviticus 16 was for the nation. Two male goats were brought once a year. Those male goats, one ended up being the one that died on the altar. The other is what the priest laid his hands on, confessing the sins of the Israelite nation. He didn't confess the sins of the nations around them. He confessed the sins of the Israelite nation. And then there was a man that was already scheduled to take that one goat and take him into the wilderness as far as he could take him. In a picture, he carried the sins of the nation away. The other animal died, propitiating the wrath of God. You see the picture? They saw it every year. It was a big time in the life of the nation. The celebration only which they were to be afflicted. What does it mean to be afflicted? It meant that you came repentant. You came seriously thoughtful. You weren't bringing your tithe to the house at this point. You weren't coming to celebrate a feast. You were coming to see if these animals God would accept to atone for your sin and the sin of the nation. You see, its future hung on these animals. There's one thing we can agree together. There's many things we can dispute. But this is one thing that you and I together can agree that the Old Testament and the nation of Israel was founded and established and its culture was a culture of particular atonement. No one who reads it can disagree with that. So why would God establish such a thing for so many years? Coming now to the New Testament, we ask this question, why then if these animals were so effective, but that's the point. They weren't. Right? Think about it. If you brought one, one time, everything ought to be good. You had to keep bringing them. Every year, even though you brought your own, you had to come to see what happened to these two. When the priest went into the Holy of Holies, did he come back out? You see, the nation hinged on that. It was a reminder year after year after year after year. Something wasn't completely right. It was still left undone. There was something undone. So guys like Simeon, was, he was longing for the consolation of Israel. Ladies like Anna who spent their time in the temple praying, looking for this Redeemer, this Savior, this promised one. 
And so it is then in the New Testament we find these words that were read for us by our brother Larry. In this way he made this statement, the good shepherd here lays down his life for the sheep. Now let me ask you something about this passage. We can ask of this passage, is it that he's laying down his life for the sheep because he wants to be their example? Look, this is what you guys need to do. Is this the purpose here? Is this what he's speaking about? Well, surely he's greater love had no man than this than a man laid in his life for his friend. So surely in all of that, that is certainly there. But that's not the point here. There's something far more going on. Was he doing such a thing to win their favor? Well, I think the Hebrew writer of Hebrews captures it. He says in Hebrews 1 and 3, when he had by himself purged their sin, he sat down beside the majesty on high. It was the cry of the psalm, you see, that our Savior on Calvary's cross cried himself of the depth of which David knew not of. David knew what it was to be forsaken in a sense. He sensed God's being apart from him in his suffering, but never like this man experienced. You see, there was a moment in time in history. It's objective. It see, fits in the history books. It was a thing that happened. What was going on? This is the idea of atonement. It answers all the questions of the old covenant. What were all those animals doing dying? Why all their blood sprinkled? Why all that flat flesh burned? Why then would that be a sweet smell in the nostril of God? Why could people go away temporarily with their consciences cleaned and outwardly feeling free? Because something died on their behalf. Something was given up for their sin. That's why. What was going on here? The most amazing of all things. The promise of Genesis in 3 and 15. When God told our first parents, after having clothed them in a, the skin of an animal, so who killed the first one? God did. Those leaves wouldn't work, you see. That was the inventions of men. It took the blood, you see. It was that even if you were a hunter, you didn't eat anything with the blood. You understood in the blood. It was the life of that animal. And God had set that apart in a special way so that you could be reminded continually that something had to die for you to go free. God made the promise. There would come one born of a woman. Seed of the woman. Although his heel would be bruised, he would crush the head of the serpent. The very thing spoken of right here in Hebrews. Think of this. This picture is this in the book of Hebrews. What high priest, although he was a special individual given special responsibilities, would ever dream of carrying that blood from that little goat that I early spoke about he would carry it in, sprinkle it seven times in particular places. He would go back out, come back in with some other blood, sprinkle that as well. What priest ever thought of sitting down beside that Shekinah glory? Whatever priest ever took him a seat and set it there and said, I'm going to sit here. Would he dream of it? He wouldn't dream of it. He would die in such arrogance. 
You see, it was every year, priest after priest, year after year, they came and they offered and they left. There hadn't been but one priest that stayed. Right? And he forever sets for you and for me. He offered once and for all. Not the blood of any animal, the Bible says, but his own. You see, the animals could never in any way remove one sin. They only pictured his coming. They were only a foreshadowing of the future. They created in those who offered hope in the promise. The promise has come. The bridge has been built all the way over the chasm of sin. There's nothing left for you but to cry out to Christ and to trust Him with everything in you. You see, He didn't leave anything for you to do. The Bible says clearly that He saved His people to the uttermost. The Word indicates that there was nothing left undone. He didn't have to do what the Father gave Him as a responsibility. He completely removed everything that was in the way for fellowship with God. The very reason you and I were created. The greatest act of love was here displayed. The Bible says in Revelation 1.5, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. You know what that doesn't say? To him who loved us and did everything he could but left the last act of faith up to us. Doesn't say that. Doesn't say that we'll gather around in heaven and give Christ some credit and then look at ourselves and say, I did it, didn't I? And if we're not going to do it in heaven, let's don't do it here. Right? You see, I understand this is controversial in the hearts and minds of many, but believe me, I have no intention of being controversial. But simply to say what the Bible says. You know, like Jonah, when he was running from God, I've heard Spurgeon say, Jonah went into the belly of the whale, and Armenian came out of Calvinist. This is why. When he spit him up on the beach, he said, Salvation is of the Lord. Right? That's the cry of a Calvinist. That's a cry of a man who believes the doctrines of grace. That God from beginning to end with unredeemed, unworthy people. He has made a plan that secures them in heaven forever with Him in all of His glory. You know what we focus on? How He did it and we complain. You know, I think it's fitting that John 9 talks about the man who was born blind and got healed. <laughs> they were trying their best to get him to confess something other than what was happening. You sure you were born blind? I think you're lying. This guy didn't know how he... He, he didn't know anything. All he knew that he was blind and somebody made him see. Many in history will say this very thing about us as we come to the, this kind of understanding of Calvary and atonement. Look, you're here you know God saved you. You delight in the reality that God secured you by faith in His Son. You're, you're, you're here and you say, I don't know how He did it. I said that too. We all did, right? 
And they kept asking him, man, you're going to have to tell us. Tell us God did it for you because we know one thing. This man's a sinner because he healed you on the Sabbath. So you can't say he did it. That guy said, let me tell you one thing, all I know. I don't know who he is or how he did it. All I know is I was blind and I'm seeing. And when Christ came to him, he asked him, do you know who the Son of God is? He said, I don't know. He said, I am speaking to you. And he, you know what he did? He worshipped him. Up to the point, he knew one thing he could see. When he came to an understanding, he didn't say, oh, man, that's horrible. No, he worshipped him. So this morning, what's our goal in all of this understanding? To argue or to win some fight with somebody who disagrees with us? Not at all. This is it. To worship our Redeemer who saved us to the uttermost. This is the statement in the book of Romans that will close us this morning and I hope will be your confidence in all the days that you live. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor or who has given a gift to Him that it might be repaid? The Bible says this concerning these things as we close. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we stand this morning as those who found ourselves helpless and without God in our life. We weren't seeking for you. We had no interest in you. And we came to realize that Christ himself had died in our place, securing for us everything we need for life and godliness. And this, quest, this great reality comes to us. You've given him for us. How will you not with him give us everything we need? Oh, what a gift. Lord, this morning may our voices reflect the great truth that Christ did everything for us. You left nothing undone but you secured us and made us willing in the day of your power, and we delight in this reality. We're going this morning to take our voices and our hearts, the affection of our soul and everything that's in us, and give you thanks for it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and respond.